You know, today it is so natural that after we witness the baptism, uh, it leads us right into the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember last week, uh, we remind each other that the gospel of Jesus Christ unites the church together. That even though the church in Corinth was experiencing factions and rivalry from different groups that I belong to Paul, I belong to Peter, I belong to Christ, I belong to Apollos. But in verse 17, he reminds them that for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. Uh, an ordinance as good as baptism can be utilized as a means to outperform each other, outrival each other, to show our superiority of our teaching and our leader that creates friction, faction, and disunity in the church. And that's what happened in a church in Corinth. But Paul reminds us that even baptism is is not as essential as the gospel of Jesus Christ because baptism points us back to the gospel. The fact that we can be baptized is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done on the cross. And the center of the gospel is the cross of Jesus. And maybe some individuals in the church of Corinth being so vested in having so much gift uh, that is endowed by the Lord to the church, and they were able to have eloquence of speech, and they will ever have knowledge that they become arrogant and become a, a point of discontent and also rivalry within the church. So he reminds us that the gospel supersedes everything. The, the baptism points us back to the cross. Even communion, communion points us back to the cross. It is because of the cross of Jesus that we are able to come together. Now, as he continues with the teaching, he reminds the church that, that the message of the cross is essential in building the church in unity, in bringing the church together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Uh, let me read to you, if you can turn the Bible to that passage and join me in the reading. You're welcome to do so. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, this short passage here, I'm going to invite that into two paragraphs, two sections. One, it reminds us uh, that the cross is the wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. It is not folly. Look at verse 18. He reminds the church, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Paul divides people into two categories, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. You see, the message of the cross, yes, it is salvation, it is delivery from sin, from darkness, but at the same time, if you do not follow the way, if you do not follow the cross, if you do not receive Jesus in your heart, it is judgment. So for those who doesn't follow the cross, who doesn't follow the way of Jesus, you know, they are perishing because they depend in this world. They depend on the wisdom of this world. But for those who are being saved, it is truly the power of God. You know, people, you need to go back to 2,000 years ago. Today, the cross of Jesus is such a wonderful sign. The red cross used it to save people. When you see a red cross uh, as a hospital in places like that, it brings life, it brings hope. But 2,000 years ago at the church of Corinth, when they heard about the cross and the crucifixion, it's, it's fearful, it's ugly. It is a torture. It is a capital punishment designed by the Romans to torture people, to take them into a path of slow, death, painfully excruciating pain until they gave up their last breath. Cross when it is mentioned at the church of Corinth, has a very different picture and perspective and understanding than how we can understand it today. To say that your Savior is crucified on the cross, it's really a scandal. It's ugly. You don't want a Savior like that. It is like today we say, hey, Jesus died on an electric chair. Let me share with you the gospel. Our Savior saved the world. He died on an electric chair through capital punishment, you're like, whoa, do I really want that? Is it very, very, very attractive to people? Is that a good marketing skill? It's not going to run well. It's not going to fly well in the face of people. That's how you should understand as you heard about Christ being crucified because that's how the early church people during that time would see the cross very differently from how we feel today. And to them, naturally, it is folly. It is the end. It is humiliation. Naked before people until you bleed to death, until you flow out the last drop of blood before the eyes of people. But to us, it is the power of God to those who are saved. Paul says to us, because he included himself into those who are saved, to those who are called and believed, we see crucifixion and the panel and, and resurrection of Jesus as the power of God because Jesus took my place to receive the penalty of sin upon himself so that we who believe in him can be forgiven, so that we who believe in him can be reconciled with the Father. See, in the cross of Jesus, I am forgiven. I am reconciled with God. I am a child of God awaiting for his second return. Uh, that I may be with him forever in the glory. Two kinds of people, two kinds of perspective looking at the cross. In verse 20, in verse 18, uh, 19, he begins to point us to a scriptural support in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Remember the background and the context of the book of Isaiah, the northern kingdom facing the invading Assyrian. The strong Assyrians were fearful. So the wise get together and say, what do we do? So instead of calling the name of the Lord for protection and deliverance, they ran down to Egypt, 
forming alliance, hoping that they can stop the invading Assyrian army from invading the, uh, the Israel. And God told them, your human wisdom is what I am going to destroy. Your human discernment is what I'm going to thwart because they are not going to work. It will not deliver you. He truly reminds us that they follow their human wisdom. It's not going to bring them to where they are. So in verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Who are the wise? The philosophers, the thinkers? Uh, who are the scribes? The religious interpreter, the religious teachers of their literature, of their teaching. Who are the debaters, the commentators of the day, engaging people into seeking truth and seeking knowledge? He said, where they are? It sounds as if God invites them and says, hey, let's debate and see who is smarter, who, who is more superior. No, no, no. It is more like, you know, Paul is telling the wisest people during that time and said, you know, the cross is the wisdom of God. What can you say? Wise men, scribes, debaters, what can you say about that? And you can expect them to be silent because they don't know how to respond to that. You know why? Because cross the cross is such a scandal. It is such a difficult per, uh, a perception, understanding to understand that how could God chose that route to send Jesus through the cross and to deliver us from sin. You know, I wrestle with that, and I wonder, could it be, could it be that we have fallen so far away from God, that we have fallen so deep in sin, that we are so deprived to the point where Christ has to take that path of the cross to save us? Just think about this. In all the creatures that God has created, in the plants and animal world and human world, look at that, you know, is there any creatures who find ways to torture each other, to maim each other, to inflict pains on the same species to the extent that human beings are doing to each other. None. We are good at that. We are good at inflicting pain. Think of ways and scheming against each other. So bad, so deep, so ugly, so painful that it may leave a scar in your life forever or in your physical uh, form forever. None of the creatures will do that except human beings because of sin in our lives. And maybe that's why Christ has stooped so low to save us. And the fact that He chose the path of the cross reminds us how deprived we are in our mind in terms of the expectation of God in terms of the will of God in His creation for us. Even though we cannot understand it, even though it's so hard for us to understand, but God chose that path and bring wisdom in there. He turns the cross from shame into glory, from impossibility into possibility, from pain into joy, from death into life. Only God can do that. Wise men, debaters, scribes, can you do that? Can you change something as a as a death penalty, as a shame, as excruciating pain, uh, the, the instrument of capital punishment. How could you turn that around for the glory of God? Only God can do that. The cross is the wisdom of God. 
Look at the Bible. Look at all those who fight against God. Ultimately, they have to surrender before the will of God. A Saul, Saul before he became Paul, the missionary, he was persecuting the church. So on the way uh, to the, to the, on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus. And Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why did you persecute me? And it was through that encounter that he turned around and became Paul, the missionary, to start planting churches in the European continent. Jonah was sent to speak the gospel to Nineveh, but he turned around to move to Tarshish, another city on the opposite direction. And God sent a big fish and put him under the fish belly for three days. And then he repented and do God's will. Peter dissuaded Jesus from going to the cross and said, don't go, this is not, 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 not right. And Jesus said, Satan, get behind me because you don't know the heart of God. You only know, uh, you know, you only know how to please people. And he turned around, finally understanding the way of the cross. Look at Jacob in the Old Testament, wrestling with God, trying to outdo, outperform God's will and to insist on his will until God dislocated his joint. And he was limping and he knew that without God, I cannot live the rest of my life limping. I need God. So he held on to God and said, if you don't bless me, I will not let you go. Job, being uh, suffering for no reason, was complaining and whining and said, God, what, what happened to you? I'd rather die. Let me die. I can't take this anymore. Give me some answer. And God gave him a lot of questions in chapter 37, 38, 39. Questions after questions after questions. It was until the point where Job was like, I don't know the answers to all this. There's a far wider scheme and ram that I, I have no idea. I can't even comprehend. My wisdom is far below God. I need to humble myself and to seek God. And he said, I have heard of you, but now I see you. And many of you stop here. This is a familiar verse. But read on because in Job chapter 42, verse 6 says, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this is what we should do. You know, some of us continue to defy against God. Some of us continue to, uh, uh, to disobey God. You know, it is at the cross of Jesus that we need to learn how to humble ourselves because God's way is higher than our way. The cross is not a folly. The cross is the wisdom of God. Some of us are like uh, uh, Saul on the way to Damascus when Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why did you persecute me? In the first encounter in chapter 9 in the book of Acts, that was the only thing recorded there. But in chapter 26 of Acts, when Paul came before the king Agrippa to retell the story on the road of Damascus, he add on something else. He said, you know, Jesus said to me, Saul, Saul, why did you persecute me? And then Jesus continued to say, it is hard for you to kick against God. It is hard for you to kick against God. What is God? God is a stick with a sharp point or a spike to drive the cattle to poke them and say, hey, go this way, go that way, to bring some pain in them, to direct them in a certain direction, that's goat. Using your legs and try to kick against goat, you are looking for pain, you are looking for failure, you are looking for suffering yourself. You are not going to outdo it. You need to submit under the prompting 
of the Spirit and God. And that's what we need to do today. For some of us, we need to surrender under the will of God. Now we talk about the wisdom of the cross. Now secondly, I want to share with you the flaws of human wisdom. All the human wisdom that causes division, faction in the church of Corinth because they think they can outsmart God. Maybe some of them look at the cross and say, oh, it's folly. I, I, I'm smarter than that. That create faction and tensions in the church. Paul is going to show you and me that there are flaws in human wisdom. Yeah, the human wisdom can do something, but there's a lot of things that we cannot do through human wisdom. First of all, it fails to know God. It fails to know God in verse uh, 21. Verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It clearly reminds us that the world did not know God through wisdom. The wisdom fails to lead us to know God. You know, it is the same teaching in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 22, that we, he reminded us that we cannot know God unless God reveal himself to us. In chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18 to 22 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can he know about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But what happened? Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, for, or, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish heart were darkened. They cannot see God. Even God's existence is so clearly displayed in the creation. And verse 22 summarizes it and say, Claiming to be wise, they became Fools. They thought they are wise, but they are actually fools. They don't know God. They cannot know God. They fail to know God. We can only know God by revelation. That God reveals Himself. That God takes initiative to allow us to know Him. That's the only way that we can know God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, uh, it fails to seek God, verses 22 to 24, reminds them in verse 22, for Jews demands signs and Greeks seeks wisdom. Jews hope that through signs and wonders, miracles, that they can seek God. And the Greeks hope that through wisdom, their intellectual reasoning, that they can seek God. And that becomes the idols. The idols of the Jews are the, the signs and wonders and miraculous signs because their whole history of the nation were filled with miraculous signs, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the drying of the Jordan River that they can cross, the, the falling of manna to feed them, the striking of the rocks to produce water for them in the days of the wilderness. Over and over again, they saw the signs of God and the works of God in their lives. So when they come to Jesus and say, show us a sign, Authenticate yourself. Validate your messianic credential so that we can believe you. Bring us back to the former glory of the Davidic dynasty. We want the days of the glory of King David. It was at the prime of our kingdom. 
then I can prove that you are truly the Messiah. See, their idol is they had God completely figured out. If you are like this, then you are God. If you perform all this, then you are my God. See, they create God in their own image and in their own liking. What about the idols of the Gentiles? The idols of the Gentiles is they abandon their traditional gods, all the myths, the Hercules, the Zeus, and all that. They say, no, 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 those are not going to work. Those are myths. We want reason. If it passes my reasoning, yes, I will buy it. Otherwise, this is not something that I, I'm going to work for that. The reasoning and the human wisdom became their idol. Wrong ways to seek God. The only way to seek God is by God's revelation. He reveals Himself and allows us to come into Him and to enjoy His presence. So in verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews cannot take it because in the Old Testament it says, whoever is hung on the, on, the, on, the, on the tree is to be cursed. How can Jesus be the Messiah when he is hung on the cross? He is to be cursed. And, and for the Jews and, and for, the, for the Gentiles and for the Greek, they, they look at the reasoning and say, look at the cross and say, this is foolish. This is contradictory. This is, this is not, I, I can accept as my Savior someone who died with a capital punishment on the cross, humiliation, and you want me to follow such a savior like that? No, I'm not going to do that. And that became their idol. Their own knowledge became the idol. But we, he said, we preach Christ crucified. You know, this is, someone said, the, uh, the ultimate divine contradiction. Christ crucified. It's a contradiction. How can Christ be crucified? Someone crucified, how can him be Christ, be the Messiah, be the Savior? No way. It is contradictory when you put these two words together. It is like, you know, deep fried uh, chicken and deep fried chicken wing, yeah. But deep fried ice cube, how do you deep fry ice cube? It's not going to work. It will just melt. Same way when we look at Christ crucified. It is so contradictory. It is not going to work. But Christ, but God, in His wisdom, put them together in a way that became the salvation for us. That is the wisdom of God. He says, To those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Because in our limitation, we look at crucifixion and say this is the end, but they forgot God has the power of resurrection. Christ overcame death and sin by being resurrected from the grave and to bring glory of Easter into our lives. It is the wisdom of God that supersedes all human understanding. And God used the cross to demonstrate His saving power and redeeming grace. Human wisdom fails to know God, fails to seek God. And finally, human wisdom fails to outsmart God. In verse 25, verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. From the Greeks and from the Jews, they look at the cross and say, This is weakness. This is foolishness. 
But God, but Paul turns it around in his argument, saying, "Well, what you consider foolishness of God, foolishness is wiser than you. What you consider the weakness of God is stronger than you." He outsmarts everybody by using the cross, a crucified Savior, to redeem us, that we can be reconciled with the Father. You know that that really reminds me of how. High view of God is a, a strong theology in Pauline theology. The supremacy of God, the sovereignty of God, is so much anchoring all the theologies of Paul when he speaks about the redemption of God and the redemption of man, the salvation of God and the redemption of man as he brings this together for us. High view of God. Remember, high view of God is what will anchor. The salvation that we experience today, the church in Corinth employs human wisdom, and that caused friction, factions, and rivalry in the church, totally missing the message of the cross. The gospel and the message of the cross unites us together. The message of the cross, in the message today, I want to share with you, the message of the cross is the wisdom and power of God that unites the church of Jesus Christ. As we all come under the teaching of the message of the cross, we are all on level ground. We are all sinners saved by grace. You know, in my applications, I want to share two thoughts with you today. One, uh, remember the way of the cross is discipleship. Many of us uh, are engaged in discipleship. Disciple makers is a very strong DNA of our church. Okay, for many of you, discipleship. Discipleship is taking some lessons, following a disciple a maker, and and mentoring and growing together. That's wonderful, but remember the essence of discipleship is to take up your cross to follow Jesus. The message of the cross transpires us whole Christian life. The message of the cross is the center of discipleship. Jesus said, "If anyone wants to follow me, you need to deny himself." To take up the cross daily, and to follow me. Remember, discipleship is the cross. The message of the cross anchors discipleship. So every day, as we walk with Jesus, we deny ourselves to take up the cross because in the cross of Jesus, we die every day, and take up God's will, and to follow Jesus. That's discipleship. I just want to remind you and remind myself on that. Secondly, I want to remind us of the high view of God in the midst of divisions, in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of contradiction. We are we are into the last week of elections, and it can become more intense, uh, um, um, you know, more polarized in our society. And in our election, as you vote, as you engage in the whole process, democratic process. I want to remind you of the high view of God should anchor us during this time. Who are the powerful? You know, in this few months of campaigning and elections, somehow we elevate the politicians to the point that we feel like, hey, if he is not elected, we are doomed. If he is elected, we are doomed because this guy will take. Uh, our nation in that direction. This guy will take our nation in that direction. You know, so we we must campaign. We must we must do our part, and we must engage, and we must rally our people to do this and do that. 
Now, we need to be engaged in the whole political process. But I want to remind you that during this time, the high view of God should anchor us in our vote, in our future, in post-election days, and, and take us into the next four years. Politicians have their limitations. The powerful people that we look today, they can determine the destiny of our nations. They can decide how to spend the, the budget and how to uh, vote and how to, how to uh, elect a certain officials and things like that. All this power, they are very limited. They can only go as far as they can. Behind the scenes of every announcement before the camera, behind the scenes were a lot of negotiations, a lot of compromise, a lot of give and take. Without that process, nothing will be, will be done. No decision will be made before they can stand before the, the whole nation and say, we have decided this, we have legislated this. There's a limitation on what politicians can do. But the power of the gospel can transform community, even transform a nation as we come together to be light and salt of the community. So today, I want to leave you with this thought. In the remaining week, towards campaign and towards election, as you vote, remember, our God reigns. Our God reigns. Yes, we want to elect the right leader. Yes, we want to work together with the leader of this nation. But our God reigns. Do not elevate politicians above God. Do not elevate politicians above what they should be. But God reigns supreme in our life, in our nation, and in our personal life as well. Our God reigns. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for a wonderful Sunday as we witness two sisters being baptized, as, as we will invite them to join us in the communion to celebrate and to remember the cross of Jesus. Help us to remind each other that you reign. You reign in this world, in the universe, in our life, and in our nation as well. Teach us to know how to follow Jesus through the way of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.